0: Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by CFM. I'm Mark Fleming Williams. In this episode, I speak to Ken Book, the CEO and founder of Fluid Markets, a new company that is trying to make KPIs tradable by investors. In our conversation, we walk through Ken's founder story from a summer at Goldman Sachs through Y Combinator on the path to realizing his vision, which when achieved will make the relationship between alternative data and the markets a great deal tighter. If you know of an alternative data story that needs to be heard in this podcast, please do get in touch. So in this episode, I'm joined by Ken Book of Fluid Markets. Thank you very much for joining today, Ken. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, so this is an opportunity to talk about a early stage um, company. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of getting in early. It's a, it's a company which um, you pitched to me in, uh, I think it was at Eagle Alpha um, in London. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, this is a kind of an opportunity to kind of hear an interesting story and hear an ent- interesting pitch. And then hopefully people will hear the story and, and, um, we'll put more wind beneath the wings of the, of the, of the venture and, um, and help it, help it fly. But, um, Ken, f- first of all, uh, who are you, where are you from? Where'd you grow up?
1: Yeah, actually grew up in the DC area. Went to, after spending my first year of college abroad, went to school in New York and then a couple of years ago, and this is what kind of kicked off our journey here at Fluid, um, I spent a summer at Goldman Sachs and their investment bank in a group called Corporate Derivatives. And within Corporate Derivatives, one of the things that we did is we looked at all sorts of different types of securities that could exist, um, and then we structured them. So that was basically a subgroup of Corporate Derivatives, aside from their main group of the futures and swaps business. And so that got me thinking, if you have a sort of exposure that you're interested in, you should theoretically be able to get that exposure with your investments. Um, Wait wait a
0: minute, wait a minute. So you were you were doing a a, a kind of summer summer associate, summer analyst thing in Goldman Sachs. You're working in the derivatives space. Um, What were you doing? Yeah, so it was a group called corporate derivatives. And the corporate
1: derivatives group at Goldman does three things, basically. Um, number one is we helped corporates um, access different futures. Number two is we helped corporates access uh, different swaps. Uh, but basically, those were two sides of the same coin um,
0: for helping them manage their interest rate and foreign exchange risk. Sure. So then, corporate, corporate was thinking um, exactly they were they're exposed in their in their FX dealings. So you would help them in- exactly if you have revenues
1: in multiple different currencies, we would help you cancel that out. If you had a lot of um variable rate debt and you wanted it to be fixed rate so that you could plan your expenses better we would help you do that um but that wasn't what really that wasn't have the you part seen the, of the our-
0: uh, have you seen the uh, have you seen the bbc series industry oh i have not i've seen i've seen reviews for it though it looks great you must you must it might uh, i was, was going to ask if it was familiar from your time but um uh you'll have to you'll have to you'll have to watch it and get back to me Right, it's, it's rather it's rather risqué in places but it's also it's also interesting because it kind of shows the shop floor of a of an investment bank like that for 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 new new arrivals so it might it might be familiar in some ways in a kind of
1: yeah it, it was way? it was definitely interesting also the corporate derivatives group operates much more like a trading desk than a stereotypical investment banking group and so we definitely had some more of those stereotypes than you typically expect in an ib role
0: what kind of stereotypes Just the the
1: layout, for example, was one huge trading floor. You had the stereotypical screens at the top, phone ringing off the hook. Um, Everyone had to come in. So because we were focused somewhat more on trading and we were highly correlated or or highly involved with the uh, sales and trading desk that offloaded the risk we took on for the bank, um, because of that, our hours were much more resemblance of or had much more semblance to the sales and trading hours as opposed to Uh, The IB hours. So you would see everyone get in at seven. You would see everyone turn on their Bloomberg screens. Uh, You would see everyone start calming down right after the markets close. And so you kind of had those those aspects of sales and trading that you kind of imagine, right? You have the high intensity trading hours, um, phones ringing, everyone's listening in on each other's calls,
0: seeing different strategies to help close a deal. Uh, So it was it was very entertaining in that regard. This is this is summer twenty one. So how was how was uh, COVID social distancing playing into everyone in a in a kind of in a in a pit in the way you describe?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, thankfully, uh, Goldman, at least in the group I was in, um, was very much in favor of a return to office. There were some, uh, there were definitely some people that didn't come in every day, uh, but all of the interns and and all of the analysts and associates were in the office every day. We had a, a really great environment. Um, but because some of the more senior people didn't come in every day, um, it meant that there was, it, it might have been a little more uh, relaxed than it was beforehand. So you had analysts coming in, and I, I heard that this wasn't happening as much before, but people coming in in t-shirts and jeans, the culture was a little more relaxed.
0: Um, but overall, a very normal experience, as far as I could tell. It's interesting. I mean, when people talk, because obviously, it's a, it's a hot topic. But when people talk about, um, you know, the joys of the joys, joys of coming into work, well, I don't think people usually talk about the joys, but they, but they talk about the importance of coming into the office, and they often talk about the juniors. And actually, the juniors are the ones who need to learn from the seniors. And um, if the seniors are working from home, then what, what on earth is a junior going to do? So were you, as a junior in this situation, were you kind of thinking, yeah, it'd be really great if, if the seniors came in, actually? Or were you thinking, God, I wish we could work from home as well?
1: Yeah, so I don't want to be misunderstood. Most of the seniors were in the office. It was just that if there were people who worked from home, the people that were allowed to do that were the seniors. Um, so we didn't have the problem really, where where people just weren't in the office. Um, but yeah, I,
0: I hope that that shed some clarity. I don't want to come off. Yeah, as- you don't want to cast dispersion. <laughs> but broadly, you as a junior, you were thinking it'd be great if everyone was in in work. Or were you thinking? I were you thinking it'd be great if we could all work from home? Oh, of course. So to
1: put this in context, I was coming off of a year where all of my classes at university were all remote and I had no interaction. I was living back at home in Virginia with my parents. I had no interaction with anyone from from school at all for a little while. And so just the idea of having normal human relationships again, I think it's not only core to you know, networking with seniors in the workplace, but it's core to your existence as a human being. We aren't meant to sit alone in a box all day. And yeah. so that I, I was definitely excited to get back to the office. And also having spoken with a lot of my friends who were at other companies, other banks uh, who weren't in the office already, uh, they definitely had a diluted experience compared to what I received by being in the office. And that wasn't just a diluted experience in terms of the work they did. Um, lots of them felt like they weren't really getting actual work because they couldn't be trained in person. Um, yeah. But aside from that, it was just the, the collegial aspect of being around people <laughs> like it's very understated and we take it for granted and I feel like COVID's already kind of on the backdrop, but it was so refreshing to actually be in a situation where we didn't have to wear masks because we were working with the same people every day. We could actually talk to human beings without having to schedule a zoom. It was truly groundbreaking at the time.
0: I don't know Ken. I think you sound like a boss. I think you've become a CEO and you've changed. If I'd spoken yeah. to you back then, I think it would have been different, but you're the you're the man. Hopefully now. for the better. <laughs> but anyway. Um okay, cool. So um the, there we are. You're at Goldman's. You're doing your your summer summer internship. You are doing a and 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 what what created this thought? Can you remember the circumstance where the where the thought came to you? Yeah, of course. It's actually
1: much less Magical than some people might think. It wasn't that I I saw something specific um, at Goldman and I was like, our customer needs this and they're not going to build it here. It was more the fact that I was, for years, I had been managing my own portfolio as a retail investor. And as part of managing my own portfolio as a retail investor, I had been tracking the markets. And for a long time, there have been businesses where I wanted to invest in part of the business, but I didn't want to invest in the rest of the business. And I had thought that that was just impossible and that that's the way it always had to be. So one common example, and this example, I actually, this was the one that spurred the idea that I had while I was at Goldman. I realized YouTube started adding advertisements, not just at the beginning and end of every video, but they started adding advertisements in the middle of each video. And then they started showing one of two ads before you can skip. And I think nowadays they show three sometimes before you can skip. And so number one, that makes a lot of people frustrated and drives premium growth um, in their premium ad-free plan, which is obviously much higher revenue per customer for them. And number two, for those that it doesn't, they basically 5X their revenue overnight, right? The ads still cost the same. They weren't getting any cheaper. But instead of showing one ad at the beginning of a video, you had beginning, after, two mineral ads. You could have five, six ads within a video. And if you go to 40, 50-minute documentary type videos, you could have a dozen ads. And so I realized that YouTube basically flipped a switch. And because they have such a wide moat, they were able to effectively 5X their revenue overnight for this type of advertising. And so I really wanted exposure to YouTube. But YouTube, despite being worth on its own an estimated around $300 billion, YouTube is just a small portion, maybe a quarter or less of the behemoth that's Google and or Alphabet. And so I wanted to invest in YouTube But I didn't want 75% of my investment going towards a company that I thought was largely mature and not growing nearly as quickly as its subsidiary. And so the first version of this idea was I noticed that in Credit Solutions, which is that subgroup within corporate derivatives, where I told you we created these bespoke contracts for or these bespoke products for clients to help them get the unique exposures that they wanted. Um, Because of that, I realized it's possible to structure anything to get any exposure. And so then we started looking into myself and my now co-founder, who's our CTO, who was also, uh, he was a quant in the same group that I was uh, a banker for during that summer. Um, so we started looking into different ways that we could possibly get exposure to YouTube and not Google. And that was kind of the first iteration of this whole idea.
0: So how did how does one uh, structure it so that you can, you can buy YouTube, not Google? Yeah, so good question. At the beginning, we actually, uh, messed up a lot there were a lot of structures we looked at
1: that didn't end up being viable we looked at reg a plus offerings i'm not sure how familiar uh yeah the audience is with this type of offering. i've heard of bob marley oh okay so essentially yeah in crowdfunding there are a few different types oh that's funny i didn't get that <laughs> <laughs> so reg a plus offerings with the space between the reg and the a um so well, the space between what the reg and the a Okay. Not reggae. It's a type of crowdfunding. It's called Regulation A, and okay. in this type of crowdfunding, um, there are a few different ways where you're allowed to raise money for different assets, and retail investors are allowed to put money in. And so, for example, there are companies. Have you heard of Masterworks? Uh, no. Okay, so Masterworks is a company that's getting decently large that helps retail investors get exposure to the luxury art market. Their thesis is that art is really expensive, and it's hard for everyday investors to get access to that market, whereas the art market outpaces the, has outpaced the S&P for much of the last 25 years. And so how they do that is the company Masterworks sets up these individual series LLCs which is essentially a corporate structure where you have a parent LLC that can have little sibling LLCs underneath it or child LLCs underneath it. And each one of those is called a series. Within each series, Masterworks would put one asset. That one asset would be a piece of artwork. That would be paid for by essentially crowdfunding. And what that crowdfunding is, is it's people buying fractional ownership within those series LLCs. So any of these companies that you see, Otis is one of them, um, which was bought by Public.com, I think, but it might have been bought by another firm. Um, Wealth or, or Masterworks is one of them. So any of these fractional ownership companies this, in the U. S. This is the structure that they use to make sure that retail investors can invest in these bespoke asset classes. So the first, what if, someone,
0: what if someone sells? So if I own, if I own a tiny, if I own a tiny corner of this artwork, and then I decided I want to cash in my. Uh, Cash in my um, chips. Then, what does everyone else? Does everyone else have to buy that corner of me?
1: Ah, oh, so this is the beauty of the series LLC structure, which is that you can trade them on an ATS. And so, an ATS is in is is a structure in the US. It's the same structure that the, the infamous dark pools that banks uses. But an ATS is essentially a mini stock market. Uh, but instead, it but it's not quite regulated as an exchange. It's a little easier and cheaper to set up. And what happens is you can list these shares in the series LLC that people bought for secondary trading. And so if the value of the art goes up over time, the idea is the value of this series LLC will trade on the ATS with its ticker and everything. It will trade on the ATS representing the current value of that artwork. And so you can get in and out of it. You can build a portfolio with different types of artwork. And so that's, that's the theory behind these different startups. And it it kind of creates sort of a, an, an art ETF in a way. Exactly. It's it's in a way an RDTF, but more specifically, it's a way to get exposure to specific pieces. So and it's not limited to artwork. So for example, there are Michael Jordan Game Worn shoes that some of these companies have listed. And if they're worth forty thousand dollars or whatever they're worth, you can buy a five hundred dollar stake in those shoes. And if they sell for a hundred grand at auction five years from now, you've made a good a
0: good amount of money. Does everyone get to wear them for a day? Like a, like a theirs. like a like a shoe a shoe share. Something tells me
1: that would that would increase the depreciation. <laughs> anyway, um, okay, cool. So keep going. Yeah, so that's that's kind of where we started, and the, the idea was to have um, a in one of these series LLCs set up where you had investors buy fractional ownership of the series LLC, and we would take the cash that's raised from that offering and offload it to a swap. Um, on the other side, where we would basically say for every X dollars in revenue generated by YouTube, the swap is worth Y dollars. So it would be a set, a fixed fraction of that amount. Um, and then we found out that it's really difficult. What are you to- owning
0: in that? What are we earning? I'm, what are you owning? I mean, in the art example, then. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard effort. So- there's an artwork being, being owned under underlying this. But in your case... What are, you, what are you owning on, um, what claim have you got to YouTube?
1: Yeah, so in that case, you didn't have a direct claim in YouTube. It was a derivative product, and there are several reasons we moved away from this structure to a much more direct one, but it was a derivative process where you owned the rights to a fraction of YouTube's cash flows or revenue promised to you by someone else. So it's kind of like if you're in a, if you're on draft, like a games. bookie, Some, yeah, someone's definitely. taken the other side of that bet. From exactly.
0: Me. Okay.
1: And so that's, that's kind of where we started. And then we realized that it actually wasn't, after much legal back and forth, we realized it wasn't going to be okay uh, for us to actually fill one of these series LLCs with a swap, because then it would be based to security. And technically, these series LLCs are not supposed to hold securities. So we had to go back to the drawing board. In that time timeframe, uh, we had to decide whether or not this was something as a team that we were able to actually pursue full time and try to make into a reality. And the summer had ended by then we were in our last year of school. And so my co-founder who I met at Goldman and then another co- our, who ended up being our third co-founder, a friend of mine from, uh, from university, we started trying to raise capital and we realized pretty quickly, um, that it would be difficult to raise the amount of
0: capital necessary from the get go. Um, until we really got, we, we got lucky. Cause you're going to need to, you, you essentially, you're going to need capital in that situation. In order to incentivize the, the bookie, you're, absolutely, you were going to have to get somebody to buy into it to this enough to take the other half, take the other side in these in these bets, essentially, you needed someone to, to kind of make the market
1: a hundred percent. And that's without even considering the legal paperwork you have to get through just to get up. And so there were lots of different things that we needed to do. We also keep in mind needed to have enough money where we'd be able to support ourselves personally if we weren't going to go back to the banking world. Yeah. And so that was a big issue. And then it was still COVID, and we got a
0: little lucky because I don't know. Were you ever in New York during COVID? Um, well, I mean, COVID's a kind of fuzzy term, but but you know, <laughs> just, sort of, yeah.
1: Did you? I'll be more more specific. Did you see the COVID testing vans that were all over the city? No. Okay, so there were these mobile COVID testing vans that were set up all around New York City. And after my summer at Goldman, uh, a friend of mine and I, we noticed that these vans were being set up all over and we decided to look more into it. And we ultimately ended up setting up our own. This is a little off topic, but it gets to the point of how we became, uh, how we were able to do this full time. But we ended up setting up uh, this COVID testing business where we ended up launching dozens of COVID testing locations throughout New York city. And that was kind of able to be a little side hustle that I ran uh, throughout my last year of university, that gave me the personal capital necessary to go full time right away.
0: Now, did you, need
1: much of a, did you need much of a license to do that? So we were. Our role was not on the healthcare provider side at all. We were operators, and we were hired on a monthly basis by a lab, and that lab handled all of the licenses and registration. So every van that we that we launched. Was regist- was related to an existing urgent care and an existing doctor that came and did site visits. Um, you were and- the
0: you were the van company essentially. Yeah.
1: So we were we set up the vans, we stocked them, we staffed them, we decided where it w- was best to place them, um, and then we basically got paid a management fee for doing that. Nice,
0: nice. Okay, well done.
1: Yeah. And so that ended up giving me the personal runway I needed to pursue this full time, and we raised a couple hundred k, but we realized that that wasn't enough to get us where we needed to go. And that also wasn't enough to get my co-founders on board. Practically, they wanted to come, um, but practically speaking, that's just not enough to, to support yourself full time while still covering the business's expenses and having any chance of success. And so we got lucky again, which was that we had applied for a company called Y Combinator. Are you familiar with them? I am. Yeah. So Y Combinator. Um, is this startup accelerator that was one of the first investors in Airbnb, DoorDash,
0: Dropbox, um, Calci in finance, if you've heard of it, Coinbase. Yeah. It's like yeah. a crash, isn't it, for, for companies. So the, it brings in it brings in these kind of entrepreneurs and gives you a surroundings and introduces you to each other and, and gives exactly. you advice and then the ones that are good come out of it and, and turn into companies.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so We actually applied for them once in the beginning of my senior year at college, and they rejected us, but they sent us an email saying, you were in the top 10% of applicants, we'd like you to apply again. So we applied again later, the next time applications opened, and still, um, we had an interview, the interview we thought went okay, they rejected us again, and we kind of forgot about it until it wasn't towards um, kind of the end of that year, where we ended up getting an email from one of the partners at Y Combinator who had interviewed us before. And he said, if you're still working on this, I'd love to talk to you again. And so we talked to him the next day and they ended up inviting us the one time we decided it wasn't worth applying. Um, And so that was a break that gave us an investment of five hundred thousand dollars. And that was enough on top of what we had already raised to get the team on full time. So then we get to Y Combinator and we realized pretty quickly that our strategy of approaching retail investors with this um, kind of convoluted series LLC structure uh, was not going to work. And so pretty quickly, we pivoted to an institutional route where we realized that the people who are actually going to spend uh, the big bucks on something like this and the people that are actually going to find value in it beyond just a cool, entertaining product are going to be the institutional asset managers, Uh, the hedge funds that have the discretion uh, to
0: make long, short positions based on a core thesis and because it's as, too complex essentially or because it's it's kind of like retail investors generally are kind of that level of granularity of just investing in the co- in the company is enough for them whereas... yeah that's
1: that's part of it but also even if retail investors are interested the customer acquisition cost in consumer in consumer finance is huge it's astronomical any of the it, it's one to two hundred dollars per customer and that's if you're lucky and so building a consumer business where the average consumer might only trade a couple thousand dollars of which we get pennies from. The the math just doesn't make sense. It's not going to work even if consumers are interested. You get a thousand consumers interested, you might only get $2 million traded. If you get 10 institutions interested, you might get billions of dollars traded. And so it's just a totally different ballgame. But once we realized we had to do that, we realized, okay, now we actually have to talk to institutions. And so that's when we pivoted our sales strategy from a retail Marketing strategy to an institutional sales strategy. We started talking to any hedge fund we could find. And we realized pretty quickly that the product we were offering was a subset of what they wanted, but it wasn't what they wanted most. And it became pretty clear from talking to customers that what they wanted most was actually a product where you could trade on the things that they care about, regardless. Uh, And and know that if they're correct, they're going to make money regardless of what happens to the stock. And so in some small amount of cases that might be investing in YouTube instead of Google. But outside of the top handful of mega cap companies, there isn't that much interest and definitely not enough for liquid markets uh, for subsidiaries for these massive public companies. And so we realized that what most of these investors wanted was for them to just know and have the certainty that if they do their job correctly, they'll make money. And that's a big problem that investors don't have today, which is that you can spend as much time and money and effort doing all the research in the world, and you could get every prediction correct for the earnings report. But if you don't know what the market is expecting to happen, it's useless. You don't know whether or not you're going to make money. A majority of the time a company beats earnings, the stock moves the opposite way and vice versa. And so it's just not a good predictor. So we realized that if we could create a product that would perfectly correlate to one's prediction, right, that would be a very valuable product. So we ended up focusing on the KPIs that investors care most about, which at the beginning is just going to be uh, revenue and EPS for uh, public companies because there are countless investors who pour so much time and money into identifying what they believe those key kpis to be every quarter and whether or not they're right it's not such a high predictor of where the stock's going to move whereas if you could have a market that perfectly tracked apple revenue for example then if you thought apple revenue was going to be higher then you went long apple revenue if you were right that it went higher you'd make money hundred percent of the time. And so that's kind of where we've shifted our focus to.
0: I mean, essentially, there's a risk that you're solving, you're rewarding people for being um, behind the times in that it could be said that predicting uh, what Apple's earnings is going to be this, this quarter mm-hmm. um, was the game of five years ago or three to five years ago. And it could be that the people who are getting frustrated because they're saying we absolutely nailed it and we still didn't make money are behind the times because all the chat is about the, about, um, actually the money is to be made by working out what those guys I was just talking about are going to do. And then uh, taking the other side of their trade.
1: Yeah. The people, the people,
0: the people who are looking at the data to be able to predict this five years ago. are now A step on and are looking at the people who are now looking at that data and and, and acting off the back of what they're doing. Do you see what I mean?
1: Yeah, 100%. And that's definitely part of it, but not all of it. So one way that we tackle that, for example, is our futures are going to be offered for more than one quarter out, right? So for as long as we can have liquidity, that's how long they're going to be offered. So it might be, you're right, that much of the money to be made is going to be looking at our... So the way that we structure it now, I think I skipped over that. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. A, I've, I've, jumped, I've jumped you ahead.
0: So, so, so complete, the, complete the picture.
1: Yeah. So last step of the picture
0: is we realize that that convoluted structure with the series
1: LLC doesn't make any sense. And if mainstream institutional investors are going to use this, it has to look like other products they're familiar with. And especially it has to look like other products that their compliance teams are familiar with. And so we decided to structure it as simply as possible, which is just as a straight-up futures contract. And that futures contract is equal to a fraction of the number reported in the quarterly statement for whatever KPI we're talking about. So if it's revenue, for example, the company is legally mandated to report revenue. Therefore, we could say for every billion dollars of revenue, this futures contract is worth $1, and then you can take the long or the short side of that contract. And so that's the structure we have now. Now, given the, the concerns you made, we can offer those futures contracts with different expiries, right? And so we can have an expiry five years out if there's enough of a market for that. And we can have an expiry one quarter out. We know that this quarter's earnings don't only impact five years from now because, or aren't only impact. let me rephrase this. We know that the stock performance following an earnings call is not only about five years from now, because as soon as they report the key KPIs, there's a heightened volatility around those numbers. It is true that forecasts account for a big portion of the movement, but it, they're not all the movement. And so there definitely is some work going on right now. That's why EPS and revenue surprises and misses are so widely reported on. It's because people actually do care about them. That being said, you're right. It's not the whole story. And the best investors are thinking five, 10 years ahead. So you, you definitely do have a, a,
0: a variance of factors that, outco- uh, that impact your outcome there. Okay. Um, and you've, and you've got a kind of, you've got a two stage model in the company, haven't you? Um, you've got a two step. Um, I remember when you described it to me, then you've got a first step where you are. So what are you, what, what, what stage you at now? What are you, what are you, what are you trying to achieve right now?
1: Yeah. So right now we're in talks with a couple of futures exchanges, one specifically that's uh, more likely than the others, um, to eventually list these futures on their exchange. At the beginning, we had thought about starting our own exchange, but again, we want to make it easy for institutional investors to access these products, which means we want to make it very easy for compliance teams and for them to go and run through another exchange is a big deal for them to trade a product, approve trading of a product that's on an existing exchange, much less of a big deal. And so we're speaking with an existing exchange to list it, but through that product process, we realized or they told us that um, they're only willing to list it if we can sufficiently set the landscape for liquidity. And that's obviously the name of the game no matter what, right? You're only going to be able to launch these markets successfully if you can have liquidity uh, pretty early on. And so on that note, um, we've been talking with most of the major market makers out there at some level or another um, to see who's willing to be that provider of day one liquidity. And there are a couple that are, again, more interested than others, Um, and then to support them.
0: They're looking for what would be the what would be the characteristics of the more interested ones? The
1: characteristics are high frequency trading firms that currently have an equities business and that also are involved in futures. Okay. Um, Okay. And again, what what the market needs to survive is liquidity means nothing if you only have a market maker. Right. You also have to have a few different types of market participants. So we need market makers. That's number one. Number two, you need speculators. And number three, you need hedgers, and you also need these natural users that actually have a need for what you're, what you're offering. And it's very obvious who the market makers are, right? That's a, a finite number of firms who participate in market making. You can compensate them for it to help speed it up. Um, that's a very straightforward thing. When it comes to speculators, speculators come into anything if there's enough volume and, and, and poor pricing. So that, that will come with time. Um, And when it comes to hedgers and the natural users, that's where we're really trying to build a business right now. And we're trying to build a client book. So we're identifying specific funds who, given their existing trading strategies, um, would find uses in our product. So, for example, on the hedging side, if you're an investor that cares about Apple's earnings five years from now and 10 years from now, you might not want short term earnings announcements uh, to impact your returns five years from now, right? Mm -hmm. So it could be that your thesis about five years from now is totally correct. But because they missed earnings, or because they missed revenue, the stock falls 3% that day. And investors see that you're down 3%, they think you're doing a bad job. But really, your thesis was entirely correct. And you just don't want that short term exposure affecting your portfolio. So what you might do is you might hedge your risk by locking in the current expected revenue for the next quarter for Apple at this current moment in time when you enter the trade because you're comfortable with what's currently baked into the stock, but you don't want any future disappointments to affect your long-term thesis. So that would be a, a hedger type of um, type of ideal customer profile that we're looking for. And then when it comes to the natural
0: users, that's what we struggled for a long time, meaning who are the people who actually... Are there any, I, like, I, I just just... Picking up on something that we said at the beginning when you were at Goldman Sachs, I mean, could there be any corporates who'd be interested in hedging their own? No, they can't. They can't trade their yeah, own. Yeah, that's,
1: that's, we, we, we had thought of that also and we would love if they were allowed to. And I'm sure they would be interested, but that's a conflict of interest, meaning yeah, yeah, you can't have, I they know, to they'll
0: know how bad it looks or how good it yeah. looks or whatever.
1: Also, you can't have people financially incentivized to have fewer sales. Yeah. That's a, a, a big breach of fiduciary duty there. So we, we wish corporates would be involved there. Um, but I, I don't think what that's, about What about hedging
0: against their competitors? Um, so their their competitors, because the effect of competitors' earnings will have an effect on the whole sector, potentially. That's interesting. Um,
1: that's <laughs> a really interesting use case. We had been told by... I just want to be careful what I say here because we've been advised um, to, to not advertise this to corporates for the obvious reasons we just spoke about, but that's definitely something to look into. Yeah, okay. Well, that you've got something from this call, at least. Yeah, no, that's that's tremendous. Thank you for that. Um, we'll we'll have to have to clear it legally first, but
0: yeah, and and supply chain as well. Um, if yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, I wonder if if your supplier company is doing very well, but if your if your purchaser company is doing badly, then maybe they're going to buy less from you. Um, yeah, to you're torture. saying corporates could have use cases outside of their own KPIs, but rather against
1: other KPIs that are somehow their business depends on it. So, for example, if, you are, if you're worried that one of your suppliers goes under, it's essentially an insurance policy against that, yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. definitely very interesting. Um, so, yeah, so the hedgers are, are one part of the equation, and then the natural users are the other. And that's kind of where alternative data comes in. I'm sorry it's taken us a half hour to get to this point, oh, but <laughs> it's been fun. Likewise. So the reason we ended up going to that Eagle Alpha conference, for example, and the reason we're targeting alternative data funds is because when we think about the natural users in this market, the the funds that would have natural fits for these products, what really sticks out to us are the people who are already spending millions and millions of dollars a year trying to forecast revenue. And that's ultimately what a large portion of the alternative data sector is, right? You have transaction data, which is one of the most valuable types of alternative data. Um, and that purely predicts revenue. You have location based data where you're looking at foot traffic, right? That's also a huge, uh, that, that helps predict revenue. It doesn't help predict EPS. It doesn't help predict other KPIs that helps predict revenue, right? And you have satellite data for parking lots, same idea. And so a huge portion of the alternative data market helps forecast revenue. And so yeah. you have these, this entire network, this entire community of funds that are building entire teams around predicting revenue. And the problem is that revenue is not such a great predictor of movement in the stock price. And if you talk to the alternative data vendors, they'll tell you this themselves, meaning that what they show is that if you talk to an alternative data vendor that sells transaction data, what they'll tell you is we can get revenue much more accurate than we can get which way the stock is going to move. And when they're selling their alternative data to you, they're actually going to show you how closely their predictions Correlate to the KPIs they help predict, and they're usually not going to show you how closely it correlates to movement in the stock, and that's because that doesn't real problem, not their problem, yeah, exactly. And when we were speaking with alternative data vendors, we realized they don't like that. They wish that they could say our product and our data actually helps you make money because it directly correlates with the movement in a stock price, right? And so our products are actually not only being a, a kind of a support system for the funds that pay millions of dollars for this alternative data because we give them a way to monetize it, we also give the vendors of alternative data an actual way to measure the value of their data sets. Meaning if we can get revenue 90% closer than your current estimates, and this market can support a trade of $10 million, right? Maybe that $10 million, we can calculate and show you in a model, will get you $1 million every quarter. And if that's what it's worth, okay, then the $1 million data set that earns me $4 million, that makes a lot of sense. And so it's, it's a great help to the alternative data vendors. It's a great help to the funds that are building teams around alternative data. And the whole idea is that you should be able to trade on the research you're actually doing. You shouldn't have to buy something that slightly correlates with what you're spending millions of dollars to predict. If you're the best at your job, you should get paid for it. It would be like if the it would be like if you shot a three-pointer and it went in but it only counted half the time. Okay. Like that wouldn't be such a great game. And so we're changing the rules of engagement for this entire industry. And so that's kind of the 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 ideal natural use case that we see for market participants.
0: How did you hear about that? you um so you weren't in the in the you're in the um corporate derivatives part of goldman sachs how did you come across the alternative data market and learn all this about how um alternative data is and providers etc how did you discover this world
1: yeah so like you said it wasn't from goldman sachs it was from conversations with different funds and kind of gravitating towards the ones that had more interest in seeing why they were interested mm. and then it was also from we we were looking very aggressively at all types of strategies out there in the market to see which ones would best fit this product that we had. It's kind of like a solution in search of a problem, which is not a great, it's not a great way to be, but if it works out, it works out. And so we ended up watching, um, or I came across this, I think it was a video from the SALT conference, if I'm not mistaken, um, from a few years ago on how alternative data is- Mm -hmm. Battlefin, Battlefin and SALT. Yeah, yeah, so it was, It was a a talk on how alternative data was shaping the future of the space. And the more I heard them talk about it, it seemed like everything they were talking about was indicative of revenue. And they were saying, we have all these cool, fancy tools that are going to help you predict revenue. And I had known for our months and months of working on this and a year or two by then of working on this, I had known that revenue is not all that important on its own to calculate. And that's the problem we're trying to solve. So as soon as we found this community of people, trying their best to forecast revenue,
0: we'd known we found our fit. But so you found your fit because there's people, it's people who are interested in alternative data and who are kind of naturally predicting revenue, forecasting revenue. Um, Can I just throw a spanner in the works by saying um, that quite a lot of these people that you're talking about are actually really into trading liquid markets as well, like highly liquid markets. And you're talking about creating a new market it's going to be surely in the best possible world, it's going to take a while to get to the kind of depth and, and, and liquidity that are going to get some of the bigger funds interested, isn't it? No,
1: absolutely. And even successful futures products take years until they're at full liquidity. And you, have to, you, you really have to identify the early adopters. At the beginning, obviously, the fact that these markets will not be totally efficient will be a source of alpha. It's kind of this inverse relationship where the less efficient the market is at the onset the more people will be attracted to it for the sake of just exposing the mispricing um, and taking advantage of the fact that if there are fewer people in a marketplace, the market by definition is less efficient. Um, but, but you are right. Even uh, uh, let's take, for example, Bitcoin futures, right? Everyone knew that Bitcoin futures eventually were going to be something. Five, six years after they're created, they don't have nearly as deep liquidity as people would have hoped. And they're probably going to be successful markets. So even the successful futures markets take years to develop. And that's just the nature of the game
0: okay so you're just playing the long game and and if there's if there's appetite then um then it'll the good will out essentially yeah exactly Meaning I mean if, if there's appetite and if we actually help people earn money right
1: people are going to trade it if it turns out that people aren't making any money because our markets aren't efficient enough or we just don't have the volume to support any or we just don't have the liquidity to support any significant
0: volume then we'll we'll teeter out and that'll be the death of us where do you end up fitting in? What do you end up owning in a successful in a successful future? You're not owning the exchanges because you're doing it on the, um, you're doing it on existing futures markets. Mm-hmm. You're not, um, you're not providing. You know, so the the contracts are all owned by the um, by the market makers and the and the speculators, etc. What do you what do you what do you end up? How do you end up making money in it?
1: Yeah, so we end up making money by two ways. Um, number one is we have a rev share with the exchange for trading fees. And so there are other companies that use that model. If you go to, if you look up at the in Quebec's, um, they have energy markets and they use that model. So that's again, a company that markets and partner that markets futures contracts, which they partner with an existing exchange to launch and they have a rev share. So they're, they're, the model is pretty, uh, the, the model is pretty established. And then where we'll make even more money is on the alternative data side, ironically, meaning we'll be able to actually sell, our order book as this prediction model essentially for what the market is currently pricing in. So now if you are looking at the existing stock, right? If you're looking at the public stock, the one that is liquid, even if you're not interested in trading our markets, if you are a fundamental long short equity investor that doesn't touch futures whatsoever and that doesn't touch alternative data whatsoever, if you are, or maybe you do touch alternative data, but you aren't going to trade this product yourself, right? You have a, you've spent your entire career trying to understand two things, right? Number one is what you think is going to happen. And number two is what you think the market thinks is going to happen. And if we can take one of those out of the equation and just give you a finite answer, this is what the market is currently pricing in with absolute certainty, right? That makes your job much easier because then you yeah. can tell whether or not there's a delta between your
0: prediction and the market's prediction, which right now is very, it's very hard to tell that was the second step I was talking about earlier oh, the, yes, um, exactly. create that create the market and then, and then sell the data. But, um, but yeah, awesome. Well, I think that's a really good rundown of, of the story so far and, and, uh, and yeah. the kind of the thesis behind the the company. Um, I mean, one, one last thing, I suppose, one final question, anyone who's been listening to this podcast and we'll have, we will have uh, various buy sides uh, along with data providers and anyone who's interested in alternative data. Um, if someone is interested uh what can they do about it how can they help support the venture how can they learn more how can they get involved
1: yeah so the best way to get involved is to contact me uh or the team about your specific use case and you can find us at fluidinvesting.com and there's a form if you just click the institutional investors button you just fill that out or you can just email me directly which is ken at fluidinvesting.com.
0: So that's K-E-N at fluidinvesting.com. And we'll respond to you shortly. And at the moment, it's just kind of making contact and identifying yourselves. And, and so you're, you, they're there to kind of be early stage. Uh, yeah, at the so moment they're, we're, they're in the, we're in the
1: beginning. Exactly. We're building liquidity right now by essentially garnering a list of all of the people who are going to be the first people in the marketplace until we get
0: to this critical mass where we can actually launch it successfully. They get some. Will they get some kind of early early bird rates or anything? We can we can talk about that on a case by case basis. <laughs> okay, jolly good. We have. Um, I think we've got it all, haven't we? Yeah, that's <laughs> it's, uh, that's most it's of it. Been, it's, a story. it's been a ride. It's been a ride. It's been brilliant, actually. It's a it's a it's a fascinating topic, and it's great to hear like your step by step as well. You know your your discoveries as you go. It makes it makes it you know it makes it a story. So. Um, so, no, it's, um, it sounds to me like a very exciting idea. I, it's great, actually. I love the way that you've you discovered alternative data kind of organically. You kind of, you happened upon it as these are the guys who are going to want us most because it, it absolutely is. This is a world, obviously, which I'm more, more familiar with. And, yeah, everyone talks about forecasting revenue for a quarter the whole time. So, um, so yeah, unless you've got something extra to add, it's been an absolute pleasure. No,
1: the pleasure has been mine and thank you for having me.
0: You're very welcome.